0: Rabbil Alhamdulillah, Yerubbil Alameen, Wassarat Wassalam, Ala Ashrafil Lambiyahi Wal Mursaleen, Wa Ala Alihi Wa Ashabihi Ajma'in. Alhamdulillah, tonight's uh, discussion, inshallah ta'ala, very important. I mean, as, as we try to make all discussions important and relevant, relevant is, is the, probably the. Um, the operative term uh, to make sure that our conversations are are relevant um, and <clears throat> relevant as well as um, substance field, right? We don't just want to be relevant, but we also want to make sure that the information that we're given is you know infused with substance for our souls, for our social uh, and spiritual well-being. So, today's discussion, or tonight's discussion, inshallah is, is going to be centered around leadership development. Um, raising boys during uh, times of sexual and gender crisis. As I said in the khutbah, um, we are definitely uh, in, a, in, in changing times where you have men becoming women, women becoming men, and we're living right in the middle of that. And you know, for us as Muslims to ignore that and not to address that, or at least give uh, some solutions to you know to you know navigating through this this time, you know we will be you know negligent not to do that. So our discussion tonight will be centered on leadership development, how the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi was with the youth of the companions. Uh, we're talking about raising boys in particular. All right. I'm um, gonna start with uh, a statement from Frederick Douglass, um, since today is the, the birthday of Martin Luther King, uh, another you know great um, figure in the civil rights movement. Another great figure, even though he came you know um, a lot before Martin Luther King, he paved the way for people like King and for Malcolm X and others. You know to do what they did and this is none other than Frederick Douglass who said uh, it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken boys. It is easier to build strong children than to repair broken boys and what that means is that it is easier to start off giving the children the foundation that they need so that they grow up becoming strong men than to neglect them in childhood And wait until they become adults and they become broken men And try to repair them once they become broken men And this is essentially where we are today In the Muslim community, especially African American Muslims that We're trying to repair broken men And as you can see, uh, this is not really working out for us When you think about it, it's not really working out Which is why most of my concentration, for those of you who follow me You can see that my concentration for I would say the past six months, has been really focusing on our youth. Because we have a a lot of issues with us as adults, and um, if I invested most of my time in trying to repair broken adults, I would go down in history having achieved very little. But if we concentrate on our youth, then perhaps we will see more fruits from that. Than to you know exercise Or or to put all of our energy in trying to Repair a lot of the things that For the most part is you know with us As adults is not going to change We may learn a little things we may learn Some tricks of the trade here and there As we go along the way but in terms Of changing who we are as adults And impacting the society And the environment around us I don't really see that happening I don't really see that happening and that's not me Just being pessimistic that's me being realistic Alright Raising boys is by far one of the most difficult tasks for any parent. And for those of you who have sons, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not easy to raise a boy. Girls, they usually just follow the trajectory that is, you know, the path that has been cut out for them. Uh, Oftentimes you'll find one or two of your daughters who might stray and go in a different direction. But for the most part, as well as in the Islamic community anyway, girls are pretty good. We don't really have a crisis with the women in the Muslim community. Our crisis is with our boys. You know, this is this is our biggest issue. Girls, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, women who are raised by single parents, and of course, the single parents. This is not a shot at single parents. They do their best, but at the same token, one parent. Raising children, multiple children Obviously there's always room for improvement Even when there's two parents in the home There's room for improvement So how much more would that be if there's only one parent in the home But raising boys is by far one of the most difficult tasks for any parent This is part and parcel because of the responsibility The huge responsibility that uh, awaits them domestically, socially, and spiritually as men, we have a domestic responsibility. Uh, we have a social responsibility to go out into the world, to engage the world, right, and giving dawah and being the best example of a Muslim that we can be. All right, that's our social responsibility, changing, you know, speaking truth to power, changing our environment. That is all rests on the shoulders of the men in the community. We have a domestic responsibility the Prophet ﷺ said, All of you are shepherds, and all of you are responsible for your flock. That a man is responsible for his household and he will be questioned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala about his responsibility. So he has a domestic responsibility to his home, his children, his family, his wife, all right, his mother. All of these are his domestic responsibilities, right? Um, to protect his mother. Alright, to honor his father, to, you know, to, to love his wife, to raise his children, all of those are domestic responsibilities on the shoulders of our men. And, you know, as it stands, uh, we're not necessarily raising our boys to, you know, shoulder these tasks. In, in this society, we're teaching boys to circumvent and to avoid these tasks. We're not raising them to confront these tasks head on and to you know, look forward to being a husband, looking forward you know, to being a leader in the Muslim community and changing the environment and speaking truth to power. You know, We're raising our children, our boys, sending them off to college um, in hopes that they would get a good job. And, and that's pretty much it it's it's really not a, a whole science to that any any genius you know can go you know off to college and get a degree and get a good job any anybody can do that but we're talking about being you know domestically educated being prepared to be husbands being pair, prepared to be fathers right and these are you know in our society here in America we we usually are teaching our boys to avoid these things, you know, we say things to them like, enjoy your life as long as you can. And then when you're done partying and, you know, having all the fun that you can have, then settle down and get married. You know, the old ball and chain, right? That's, that's what women and domestic responsibilities are viewed as in this society, the old ball and chain, that this is what's going to anchor you down, going to settle you down, not realizing that um, getting married is one of the, marriage is one of the, the the, the the maturing process for any man, any man, if he wants to be mature, the quickest way to learn how to be mature is to enter into the institution of marriage that 's the quickest way to mature because now you are responsible for somebody else you 're no longer responsible for only you, so many of our boys are very self centered very arrogant you know very irresponsible. Um, due to the fact that they are not looking forward to taking care of anyone else, they're looking forward to women actually taking care of them, right? This is this is the idea in our society as Muslims in the com- in the communities that our idea is that the Muslim boys are going to marry a good Muslim woman who's going to take care of him, right? Feeding into that mentality of being irresponsible, you know, but. Raising boys is a difficult task because of the huge responsibility that awaits them domestically, socially, as well as spiritually. Um, Muslim men are to be the leaders of their homes, leading Salah. You know what I mean? I I just had this conversation with my my son, 16 years old. I said to him the other day, you know, how are you going to lead your wife in Salah? How many surahs do you know of the Quran? When, you, when it's time for the prayer, your wife is not going to lead you. This is the one place um, you know, in Islam where men are allowed to be patriarchal, where they have to be, and that is when it's time to lead the salat, because a woman cannot lead a man in prayer. So the man has to lead the salat. So the woman is going to look at you for that guidance, that spiritual guidance, you know. Um, and you have a lot of, you know, unfortunately. Uh, Muslim men, boys, who we're not training them to be leaders in the home, you know, spiritually, to lead the salah and to direct their family, you know, in terms of you know the guidance that we have from the Quran and the Sunnah and being an example for their children, you know, we're not training them to be that, and these responsibilities are awaiting them as they arrive into adulthood. They're awaiting them. They're awaiting them. Imran. Imran's wife, Maryam's mother If you go back to the Quran She promised Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala That if he gave her a baby boy If Allah gave her a baby boy That she would devote his entire life To the service of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala This shows you that and It's the same thing with Zechariah And Yahya right? You'll find that these Figures in the Quran These iconic figures in the Quran They could not wait to have boys so that they could train them and raise them to be in the service of God. That was that was the goal. You know, even Maryam, who um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, instead of giving Maryam's mother a boy, gave her a girl, who was Maryam. And she grew up in the temple. She grew up worshipping. And it was actually conflict you know, amongst Bani Israel because women weren't allowed to occupy the places of worship. Women weren't allowed to occupy places. Prophet Muhammad Wasallam came with Islam and changed that dynamic. He said, Do not prevent the female servants of Allah from attending the houses of Allah. But their homes are better for them. Alright, so Islam came to change that whole dynamic of women, their homes becoming their sanctuary and their places of worship. But now the masajid in Islam have now been opened, you know, for women to now exercise, you know, their their gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to exercise their spirituality in the masajid. But prior to that, women were expected to exercise their spirituality in their homes, and so Maryam, you know, she kind of changed that dynamic because she grew up. This was the promise that her mother made to Allah, that if Allah granted her a boy, that she would raise him in the service of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But Allah had other plans for her, right? We plan, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the best of planners. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says in the Quran, إِذْ قَالَتْ إِمْرَانَ فتقبل مني إنك أنت السميع العليم فلما وضعتها قالت رب إني وضعتها أنثى والله أعلم بما وضعت فليس ذكرك Allah الله سبحانه وتعالى said, and remember when the wife of Imran, this is maryam's mother when the wife of Imran, she said إني نظرتُك ما في بطني oh my lord I devote to you, whatever is in my stomach, that I will give whatever is in my stomach. Right? She was pregnant. I will devote whatever I am carrying to your service. This is the mentality back then. Now, when we have children, we send our children off into the world, go get college degrees, go you know, go work for a company. Right? Instead of you know, going to get a college degree and come back and let's build our own. Let's build a family business. That stays in our family, right? We hustle for our last name, not our first name, right? Understand that. We hustle for our last name, not our first name. The first name, the title, doctor, you know, such and such. You know, this is your this is your title, your first name. We hustle for the last name, meaning our lineage, what we're leaving behind for our children. You understand? We don't hustle for the first name. We don't hustle for the title. We hustle for the business and what we are leaving behind for our family. So it makes no sense for us to have four, five, six, seven children, send them off to college. Some of them are going to get good jobs. Some of them not going to get good jobs. But at the end of the day, the single thread between them all is that they work for somebody else. Our job is to send our children out into the world to get the information and build our own. Build our own. What college did Mark Zuckerberg graduate from? He didn't graduate. What college did Bill Gates graduate from? He didn't graduate. But these, you will remember these names forever. They hustled for their last name. When you say Mark Zuckerberg, you know who I'm talking about. You say Bill Gates, you know who I'm talking about. These individuals didn't go off to some elaborate, you know, um, you know, tier one college or university and graduate with a degree to go and work for some other company and make the company rich. They acquired a skill and they built a name for themselves that will endure for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a'lam. Allah knows best how long. Nonetheless, this is what I'm talking about. But we send our children off because we feel like we can't be validated unless our children... Yeah, my son just graduated from this university, graduated from that university, okay. And your son works for somebody else. <laughs> that, to me, is not a sign of success. That's a failure. You failed as a parent. that you sent your child to a university, spent all of this money for your child to graduate with a debt that will hang over your head until your demise... And he graduates from that university and works for somebody else. Making somebody else rich. Continuing the machine. You understand? We build for ourselves. We're building. You know, we, we're trying to teach our children to have agency. Agency. Where you build for yourself. Build for your children. Nonetheless. She said, I devote to you what is in my stomach. To your devotion. So accept it from me. It was almost like their children were offerings to God. And our children are the exact opposite. <laughs> our children become anti God. I work in an Islamic school, trust me. Many Muslim parents are not raising their children to be good Muslims. We're raising our children to get degrees from prestigious universities and continue the work of the machine. This machine, we get up 6 o'clock every morning and we feed that machine. Gotta make the bread, gotta make the money. We're feeding this machine. Which is why we are so unhealthy. Spiritually, physically, psychologically, mentally, we are unhealthy. We are the most unhealthy generation of people on the face of the earth. While we are the most technologically advanced people on the face of the earth, we are the most spiritually, psychologically, mentally unhealthy people on the face of the earth. You go to, and travel to any other country, they live their lives. In Saudi Arabia, they take naps after Salatul al-Dhuhr. They take kailula after Salat al-Dhuhr. Because life does not work, life does not revolve around work. You walk into the workplace in Saudi Arabia, they sipping tea. And you're standing in line waiting for them. And we look at them and say they're lazy. Now they're not lazy. It's just that their society doesn't function. Their lives does not revolve around work. Work is just a necessity for you know paying bills and things like that it's not a necessity in terms some people here in America work not because they have to because they want to that's where we get our validation that's where we get our fulfillment from work from employment, working for somebody else It's a sad man it's a sad statement man very sick she said. مني, so accept this from me. العليم, indeed, you are the all hearing, the all knowing. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وضعتها, And when she finally delivered the child, She said, Oh my Lord, I gave birth to a girl. Why? Because she thought it was a boy. She said, I gave birth to a girl. And then Allah says, Allah knows best what you delivered. And the male is not like the female. Allah knows what you delivered. The male is not like the female. And she said, And I named her Maryam. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He confirms, if you notice at the end of the ayat, Allah confirms that the male and female are two distinct genders. And the male is not like the female. The male is not like the female. Alright, which by virtue of this individual distinction requires a different approach to their cultivation and development. Would you guys agree that males and females, they require a different pro- approach to their cultivation and their development? And this is contrary to what is being done today of erasing gender altogether. So, there's a number of things that are happening to gender today. I want you guys to pay close attention to me. Right? There's a number of things that are happening right now. Number one, there's a move to erase gender altogether. This is what is called gender neutrality. Gender neutrality. Meaning, there is no gender. Right? There is no gender. Will Smith's son, Jaden Smith, is advocating gender neutrality. I, I am not. So you go and you fill out, they ask you whether you're male or female, I'm neither. Right. You put other, right? Gender neutrality. We want to remove gender from the discussion altogether. Don't bring gender into the discussion. This is where you get these, you know, people who sit from these places and they say, Oh, you're sexist. Everything with you is gender related. Well, hello, we live in a world that is either male or female. Right? So now we come up with these terms, you're sexist. Everything about you is related to gender. It's like, okay. Alright, gender neutrality. um, That's number one. Well, we want to remove, erase gender altogether. Or gender equality, which some Muslim women have fallen into this as well. Gender equality, wherein there's a dismissal of gender distinction. All right? Gender equality. So when you say the woman and the man are equal in every regard, as the statement goes, if two people are the same, then one of you is irrelevant. If, if the woman can do exactly the same thing that the man can do, then we're no longer necessary. You follow me? As men, we are no longer necessary. And Muslim women have fallen in that, into that today, too, as well, where they say, well, I don't need a man. You're, you're absolutely right, you don't need a man. You make all the money, all the property, the car, the home, you know, all of that's in your name, right? You have the dog as your companion, right? Yeah, Muslims have dogs now in their homes, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a very common thing right now. Right? So you pay all of the bills, you make all of the money, you're the educated one, you got the degree, you got everything, but you don't have a man. And you actually don't need a man, because you are the man. You are the male and the female. Right? You are the male and the female. You actually don't need a man. And every time a man tries to come into your life, the man is somehow emasculated because he runs into the same masculine energy dealing with you as a woman that he would if he was dealing with another man. It's the same energy. Women are not, women were not created to be competitive. That's not your nature. That's the man's nature. Our nature is to be competitive as men. Oh, he got this? I'm going go to th- go do it better. That's not Women. Women are not generally competitive. That's not their nature. Women are very territorial. They find their niche and they stay there. That's, that's what they have for themselves. And they become territorial over that. Protective over that. But they're not competitive. So now you have this competitive edge with many women. And you don't realize that you have embraced a masculine energy. Which is why you can't keep a man. No man who is a real man is going to be able to walk into a space with a woman who has the same masculine energy that he has. As men raising boys, when our boys get 17, 18, 19 years old, it's really time for them to go because the relationship between the father and the son becomes challenging because he's now reached an age where he's become competitive. He's become competitive. The lion and the cub, classic. Absolutely, right? Absolutely. So when women begin to develop this, you know, this masculine energy, right? When women become a mas- have this masculine energy, they become competitive. And that energy, men, a man who's any and the only type of man that can dwell in that realm with a woman who has this energy is a man who is effeminized. He's not really a man. And the Prophet ﷺ, you know prophesies that there will come a time where there will be men, what is known in Arabic as a day youth. A day youth is, is a cockold. This is an infeminized man. This is a man who's in a relationship with a woman but allows her to control the narrative. She does and goes and says anything she wants. And he says absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, the Prophet ﷺ said that this type of man will not even enter into paradise. And we'll get to that. So there's gender gender neutrality, where we want to remove gender from the table altogether. There's gender equality, wherein there is a dismissal of the gender distinction. And then there is effeminization, where the man, um, where the traditional male role, the traditional male nuances are regarded as toxic. So now they have this thing called toxic masculinity. Right? So basically... Contemporary feminists this is their this this is their dialogue right this is their narrative that there's toxic masculinity, and more so, the sad thing about it is that they use this towards black men <laughs> as if we don't have enough problems with people condemning our masculinity now we got our own women condemning our masculinity, so now we have toxic masculinity um you know. Which is um, nothing short of criminalizing manhood and charging the biologic, the biological wiring of men, with the choices, the poor choices that boys make. If a boy, if a man, a boy in a man's clothing decides to beat a woman, that is a choice. That is not due to his masculinity. That's a choice. If you choose to put your hands on a woman, that is a choice that you made. That's not has nothing to do with his masculinity. So we're going to charge and indict his entire masculinity as being toxic because of some poor choices that he has made a lot of times because of the environments that he grew up in so this is where it comes, so we're not even allowed to be men anymore right and the sad thing about it is that it's okay it's okay for you to be you know effeminate as a man until Uh, You're walking down the street and someone tries to attack your woman. Now she's looking for you to be the masculine, right? (laughs) It's all good, right? Toxic masculinity, right? These are men who are misogynistic. These are men who, you know, beat women, abuse women, look at women as sex objects, right? Objectify women, right? And it's all good. Abuse abuse their authority and their strength, and it's all good until you're walking down the street and someone is about to attack you. Then you're expecting that toxic masculinity to come out and defend you, right? So there's the effeminization uh, wherein the traditional roles uh, or the traditional nuances of um, you know the male, you know, the male wiring is regarded as toxic. And somehow in need of adjustment, Yeah, it needs to be readjusted, and this is in this is you know in addition to the trans transgender movement, wherein men are changing their gender to from male to female, just as the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi predicted. All right. So you got all of these things going on. You got the gender neutrality. You got the gender equality. You got the effeminization, the toxic masculinity. And then on top of all of that, you have transgender. Our children are living right in the middle of all of this as it's going on. And, you know, we have to pause for a second and realize what's happening and how in the world do we protect our boys from succumbing to you know this dynamic, the Prophet ﷺ he said, "There are three people that will not enter into paradise. Al Aquli waliday is the disobedient child, the child that is disobedient to his parents will not enter into Jannah. A dayuth, a cuckold, a man who um, takes the feminine position in the relationship." He becomes effemina, effeminized Meaning you allow the woman To control the narrative of the relationship And she now becomes the authority This man Will not enter into paradise Why? Because he has neglected his responsibility Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put men here And some people can say Well Islam is a patriarchal religion Absolutely it is Absolutely it is And if that's a problem for you Then you know you might want to find somewhere else to go Yes Absolutely so is Christianity, quiet is kept, and so is every other religion. So then I guess the, the, the goal here is to dis- disassociate yourself from religion altogether, so that you can, and the more and more you begin to try to escape and slip through all of these, you know, divine nuances that have been put here to, you know, protect us as human beings, um, you find yourself in a very dark place. You find yourself in a very dark place. And the third one... He said three people will not enter Jannah. Into Jannah, enter into Jannah. Number one, Al Aquli is the disobedient child to the parent. Number two, Adayuth, the effeminized man, the man um, who allows his woman to do as she pleases, you know, engage with other men as she pleases, right? Dress as she pleases, right? talk to whoever she, ple- like, it, 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 there are no rules between her and him, she decides the narrative, right? And then the third one is Rajlatul nisa nisa so the Sahaba, they didn't understand what this means, the woman who acts like a man, the Sahaba, they, they, this is the first time they heard this, but the Prophet ﷺ was speaking not about something that was happening right then and there. He was speaking about something that was coming, and we're right in the middle of it. When the Sahaba, when the Prophet ﷺ would say things, and the Sahaba would ask for clarity, it's because they couldn't envision that. He was speaking about things that did not, that were not happening currently in their time. So they would ask for clarity. What do you mean by that? A woman who acts like a man? What does that even mean? فسُئلَ نبيُّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ عَنْ رَجُلَةِ النِّسَاءِ قَالَ الَّتِي تَتَشَبَّهُ بِالرِّجَالِ وَقَالَ الْعُلَمَاءُ This is the woman who imitates a man. That 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 masculine energy. This is what the Prophet said fourteen hundred and some odd years ago. Right? He said, This is the woman who becomes who now resembles a man. Let me let me let me delve a little deep into this. The scholars they say Firroya and how she looks outwardly with Ma'ifa and how she wants to be known. So now today you have women who change their gender to become men, and they want to be recognized as men. She can use the male bathroom, right? This is the whole argument today. This gender-neutral bathrooms. This is what politics, American politics, revolves around who can use the bathroom. And in airports right now, they have gender-neutral bathrooms. And if you look at the sign of gender-neutral bathrooms, it's actually the cross is upside down. It's a circle. And has an arrow pointing up, and it has an upside-down cross on the bottom. Upside-down cross, for those of you who understand symbolism, symbolizes what? Antichrist. The same thing the one eye represents. Antichrist. So you can already see where this society is going with this, and who's driving it, who's behind it. And of course, none other than the chief deceiver himself, Shaitan, al-Rajim. Without a doubt. But the Prophet ﷺ said, nisa This is the type of woman who resembles a man. And the scholars say, resembles a man in her outward appearance and how she wants to be recognized. If that is not transgender today, I don't know what it is. You have women who want to identify, want to be identified as a male. And you have them the outward appearance. Some some scholars during that time, scholars when they talked about women resembling men, all of the explanations of this hadith that I come across talked about filibas, only in clothing. Today we can add another layer to that. And that is even the transgender, meaning the removal of the female private part and replacing it with a male private part. And giving them, you know, uh, testosterone, right? So that they actually start to lose their breasts, they start to grow hair, and they begin to look like men. (laughs) Ridiculous, man. This is where we are today. And our boys are right in the middle of this. The Prophet ﷺ, mentioned in another hadith, he said, al He said, there are four people who are cursed in this life and in the hereafter. And the angels have said ameen over this dua. Fa annafnafsa Watishabbah bin Nisa. Subhanalla. The Prophet said, What? Four people who will be cursed in this life and in the hereafter. And the angels say Amin over this dua. Number one is a man who Allah subhanahu uh, uh, individual who Allah made him a man. جعله اللَّهُ ذَكَرًا Allah made him a man. فَأَنِثْ And he makes himself a female. He makes himself a female. bin nisa, And he begins to look like a woman. Begins to resemble women in his speech, in his clothing. And now we can add another layer to that. And that is even in the uh, changing of the actual genitals, the private area. SubhanAllah wa Prophet Sallallahu wa sallam, he prophesized this man. This wasn't something that the Sahaba could fathom because it wasn't happening during that time. But the Prophet Sallallahu wa knew that this time would come. He said, And a woman who God made her a female, نفسها, and she turned herself into a male. And she begins to act and imitate men. This hadith was collected in the, uh, the Mu'jam of Imam al Tamarani on the authority of Abu Umama. This is the Prophet ﷺ prophesizing. Prophesizing what we are seeing happening right in front of us right now. And then you have some genius Muslims that say, oh, I don't judge to each his own. People are free to choose their lives or whatever the case may be. People are free. This is similar to what Ali ibn Abi Talib said, where the Khawarij, they, they would bust into the masjid while Ali was given the khutbah, and they would shout at the top of their lungs, La hukma illa lillah. Allah is the only judge. Allah is the only judge. Similar to what people say today, only God can judge me. And Ali, and they would interrupt the khutbah while Ali was giving the khutbah on the minbar. And they would bust into the masjid and they would yell at the top of their lungs, La hukma illa lillah, the only judge is Allah. And Ali, he said, It is a true statement, but they only intend to use it for falsehood. True. God is the only judge. But you are saying that so you could dismiss the rulings that Ali put in place. So when Muslims, right, trying to placate the feelings of the world, right, at the expense of earning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's anger, we placate as Muslims, unfortunately. Especially those of us who have reached a particular level in our dawah and our, you know, service that we believe that we're doing to the community. We reach a certain level and then we, all of a sudden, we become so political. And our, you know, speech and, you know, our dialogue, our narrative, you know, all becomes, you know, just political jargon. So we'll say all to each his own. This person, you know, whatever choice you decide to make, I don't judge. Well, you should judge. (laughs) God judges, you should judge, right? If someone says, um, what's your, someone asked me before, what's your opinion on gays and lesbians, right? This is how they try to trap you in, right? Not realizing that, asking me that, I'm probably the wrong person to ask that question. Nonetheless, what is your opinion on gays and lesbians? So my, my response to that is, what does God say about gays and lesbians? Tell me whatever God says. I say what God says. So now I stand behind God. So if you condemn me, then you're condemning God. You understand? What did God do? What did God do to to gays and lesbians, right? (laughs) According to scripture, according to the Quran, as well as in the Bible, right? (laughs) What did God do to them? What is God's take on Gays and lesbians. You don't have to ask me what my opinion is. My opinion is whatever God said. And if God condemned them. Who are you to condemn me. For condemning someone who God condemned. That is our way. Out of these type of situations. Don't ever let anybody trap you in a corner. And ask you. Oh what's your opinion about this. Ask me of my opinion on anything. And I'm going to tell you my opinion is whatever God said. I stand behind God. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, Ya'yu la bayna wa rasuli. Oh you who believe, don't put yourselves forward before God and his messenger. The first ayah in Surah Al-Hujra, Surah number 49 in the Quran. Right? Whatever God says, that's what I said. So you don't, your issue is not with me, your issue is with God. Ultimately. Alright? So the Prophet said, Four people who will be cursed in this life and in the hereafter. That is, a man who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made him a male, فَأَنَّثْ nafsahu, And he turns himself into a female. Turns himself into a female. And bin nisa, and begins to resemble and act like and talk like and walk like a female. And the second was a woman who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made her a female. And she begins, فَتَذَكَّرَتْ nafsaha, And she turns herself into a man. Now, for those of our women who are listening, I want you to be careful about how you are being, you know, manipulated into, you know, changing. Maybe you haven't changed your gender, but your mentality. You know what I mean? Like, feminists, what they now have done, is they've made traditional female, feminine qualities make you look like you're weak. There is nothing weak about being a woman. You are a human being that carries another human being inside of your body and you push that human being out into the world to experience life. That is not a weakness. So you have many of our women who are now moving away from the traditional feminine nuances Of their character. And beginning to adopt more masculine behavior. Because they see being a woman. The traditional sense of a woman. As being a sign of weakness. There's nothing weak about being a woman. Being a woman is powerful. Beyond measure. No man ever will ever know what it feels like to carry a child for nine months. None of us will ever know what that feels like. Women have to take tranquilizers in the form of what is known as an epidural in their back. You understand? We're talking about a tranquilizer. Something that is powerful enough to put a horse to sleep. And a woman takes a shot of that in her back to Relax her muscles so she can push a child out into the world. And there's some women who do it naturally. <laughs> no shock, no epidural. Naturally push the child out into the world with no drugs. And you're talking about being a woman is weak? Being a woman is the, is, is power, it is energy that is beyond what any man could fathom. Is just a different type of energy. And if women would just simply learn to embrace that energy that God already gave you, that's enough. You don't have to act like me in order to be valid. (laughs) Women, you have women who try to act like men in order to attain their validation. You're humiliating yourself. (laughs) Because you are acting other than what God intended you to be. Nonetheless, Right, to be submissive. And even when we use the term submissive, what do we mean being submissive? A woman is naturally, naturally, when she finds someone that she loves, she will do things for him that she will never do for anybody else. That's natural. That's the natural way of a relationship between a woman and a man. A woman will, you have a booger on the tip of your nose. A woman will be like, come here and wipe your nose. And you're like, ew, why would you do that? That's love. She don't see the nastiness of it, right? We're from we're men. We look at it, we're like, "Ew, that's nasty." But for a woman, when she loves you, she will pretty much do anything for you. So when we say to women, "You shouldn't be submissive to your husbands," this whole term of being, "I can't do that," "I can't do this," or "I, I won't be," you know, "I won't settle for that," you're going against your nature, man. You're going against the nature in which Allah loss of ta'ala created you. That's your nature to be nurturing, to be loving and compassionate and caring. And provided some men take advantage of that, yes. Right? Provided some women, some men take advantage of that. All right? But that doesn't mean that you have to change who you are because someone saw you as a victim and took advantage of you. That's weakness. All right? So it's important for us as Muslim parents. That we accommodate our boys the way that our religion instructs us to using Or in a manner that is consistent with the cultural climate in which we live currently We have to be able to take what our religion gives us Looking at the current climate, the cultural climate that we live in And proceed accordingly The Prophet ﷺ He cultivated the young men in his community in a manner that resembles what we know today as uh, strategies of leadership development. He was training these young men to be the future leaders of the Islamic community. And I want to offer some of those strategies tonight, inshallah ta'ala, so that we could better accommodate our boys. Better accommodate them and help them. And this is especially true for women who are single mothers. Those of you who are listening now, who you're at home by yourself, the other two people, it's not necessary. We we covered the two that we need. That's the most important thing. Alright? The hadith is a long hadith. Alright? And I took out what was important. Um but the Thing is is that women who are single mothers For whatever reason you are a single mother No judgment here But you need to understand that There are some things That we can learn from the Sunnah of the Prophet And how he interacted with the boys In his community that could help us You know help our boys navigate This terrain that they're living in now The first thing Number one I'll, I'll only do five tonight And then the next lesson inshallah I'll do the next five The first thing that boys need is they need a role model. Men develop through what is called modeling or observational learning. They watch. We have, uh, even on job sites, if you're in construction or plumbing or whatever, uh, as an apprentice, the person comes along with you, they watch what you do, and they begin to develop. This is how boys learn how to be men. You don't open a book and just automatically learn how to be a man. You watch men, and then you learn. You start to act accordingly. All right. We watch men. Those of us who grew up with our fathers, or grew up close to our fathers, we saw them interacting with other men. They took us places. We watched them closely, right? And we begin to incorporate some of those qualities in our behavior. This is what is called modeling or observational learning. The Prophet ﷺ, Allah described him as the model. The model servant of Allah for the entire world, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala says in the Quran, lakum fi That you have in the Messenger of Allah uswatun hasana, an exemplary role model. You have in the Messenger of Allah an exemplary role model for the one who desires his meeting with Allah. And his hope uh, and his hope for his meeting with his Lord in the hereafter. And remembers Allah much. When the three young men came to the house of the Prophet asking about his worship in the home, and Aisha told him that his worship was very moderate in the home. It was as if they thought that they were not doing enough, and so they were going to be more extreme. One of them said, I will never get married. The other one said that I will stand up at night all night and I will, you know, I will pray all night. The other one said, I'll fast for the rest of my life. And the Prophet, salallahu Alaihi Wasallam went and he chased them down and he asked them, are you the three that just came to my house asking about my worship and said that you're going to do this and this? And then, you know, he explained to them because he was trying to protect them from going to the extreme. This is what happens when boys don't have a role model, right? They go to the extreme of being a man, they overcompensate, right? So this is where you get that toxic masculinity that, you know, they're talking about. And it's not necessarily toxic masculinity, it's just poor choices. Let's just call it what it is. Has nothing to do with their masculinity. Has everything to do with the poor choices that they make. Either because they lack the role model, or they had a horrible example of a role model. So they go to the extreme. Alright? When Aisha was asked about the Prophet sallallahu alaihi character, she said al His character, his behavior was the Quran. And he that means that he was the standard. He was the model believer in theory and in practice. The Prophet sallallahu wasallam was the model example, the model believer in theory and in practice. Ayesha, she used to have some arguments with some of the companions, the youth, like Abdullah ibn Umar, right, who used to imitate the Prophet ﷺ in everything, right? She said, مَا كَانَ أَثَارَ النَّبِي صلى الله عليه وسلم فِي مَنَازِلِهِ كَمَا كَانَ يَتْبَعُهُ ibn Umar She said, no one used to imitate the Prophet ﷺ how he was in his home more than Abdullah ibn Umar. That he used to follow the Prophet Sallallahu in everything. He said one time that he got on his horse and saw that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, when he got on his horse, he put both of his feet inside the uh, what do you call it? The thing. What is it? Sturbs. What is it? it Sturbs. Sturbs. Right. The, the thing where your feet goes. The Prophet. He observed the Prophet put both of his feet in at the same time. So he put both of his feet in at the same time. Abdullah ibn Umar, he said that when the Prophet would come out to lead the prayer, he would walk to the right of a pillar, uh, a tree trunk that used to be in the middle of the masjid, he would walk to the right of it. He said later on, when that tree trunk was removed from the masjid, Abdullah ibn Umar still used to walk to the right even though the tree stump wasn't there because the Prophet sallallahu used to do it. Modeling, observational learning. Even Aisha had to say to him, do you think that you love the prophet more than we do? You follow him in everything. It's as if you're trying to prove that you love him more than we do. Uh, Observational learning. So it's very important that our boys have in us as fathers and even not not a, a not all the time that the father the son is going to see his father as the the role model for him but they have positive role models they have positive people that they can look up to all right not selecting you know one of the rappers for you know the rappers and these musicians these people there's nothing real their entire lives is fake their entire lives they do get one good hit One radio song on the radio all the time, and all of a sudden you're on Instagram flashing money. You're you're flashing your advancement. That money is going to run out. You're not really rich. And our children need to understand, that's not wealth. Wealth is Ralph Lauren. That's wealth. (laughs) Wealth is Coco Chanel. That's wealth. Right? A name, I can say the last name, and you know exactly who I'm talking about. And the money is long, generational wealth, right? <laughs> All right. As you know, Jay Z said in his interview, he said, "You know, the the hot white space only lasts for a few moments, right? You you can you can exist, you can be in the long term like Ralph Lauren, or you can come in and you know be hot for the moment and then disappear. It's, it's up to you." <laughs> That's not wealth, because you get on Instagram and you flash a few dollars, and we're like, man, they got that bag, they got that money. They don't have anything. <laughs> they have money for the moment. That's all they have. It's not real. Once that advancement run that van- that advancement money run out, you're back to being the same regular person. Think about how many musicians, right, that unsung and other, you know, uh, documentaries have been done. These people were broke. These people were broke. New Edition, TLC, all of these different rap groups, all of these different R&B groups, these artists, that at the time when they were hot, we thought that they had the world. And now when we look back at their documentaries, we realize that they were broke. They didn't have anything. They didn't have anything. They were broke. And our children need to understand that these people are not role models. There's nothing longevous about what they're doing. It's, it's only the hot white space for the moment. And that's it. Number two, our boys need instruction. <laughs> instruction teaches boys to be regimented and to be disciplined. Our boys, in order for you to be a leader of anything, you have to have some level of discipline. You cannot be a leader even as it relates to your own company, right? Harvey Weinstein, right? The guy who's you know been charged with all of these different cases of you know taking advantage of women, although he had the Weinstein company, he's not even the CEO of his own company. This is because you lack discipline. You could have your name, your entire name behind your company that you started, and you don't even have the ability, you don't have the rights. To navigate in that community or navigate that you know that, that business the way that you would like to, because you are untrustworthy. You're reckless, you lack discipline. You understand? They boys need direction, they need instruction because this is, t- this is what teaches them discipline. Omar bin khattab He said, Al walit Amir Asir Sinin." وَزِيرٌ سَبْعَ سنين. Very profound. Umar ibn al-Khattab, عنه, he said that al-walid, the boy, listen to his statement, he said the boy, the male child, is amir, a sayyid, seven For the first seven years of his life, he is the amir. He is the leader. <laughs> he tells you what he wants, right? Your child, when the child is young, the child is small. The child tells you, "Daddy, I'm hungry." You go get food. Daddy, I want to go outside. You take him outside. Daddy, I want to go to the park. You take him to the park. Right? He controls the narrative for the first seven years of his life. The first seven years of their life, they are the ones that are in control. They tell you what they want, and we supply them with the needs that they have. He said, well, I don't, I see asir." And for the next 7 years, meaning from 7 to 14, he is like a servant. Meaning, he's ready to receive instruction. From 7 to 14 is where boys learn how to be disciplined. They are now ready to receive instruction. Don't do this, do that. Giving them chores, giving them responsibility. Because this is what teaches them to be regimented. Teaches them to be disciplined. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of uh, single parents, both men as well as women, we overcompensate from being, for being single parents because of our, you know, we feel bad because, you know, maybe the father is not around. So some of the women, they feel bad about that. And they become very passive parents. And they allow the boys to do whatever they want to do unrestrictedly. That passive parent stuff doesn't work. You are fulfilling the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he said That the woman will give birth to her own master And that's what you're doing As a single mother who allows the child, the male child to do whatever they want to do Out of pity, out of sympathy, out of fear right? Out of fear that the child is going to bring up Where's my father at? Why'd you separate? So our fear is that I don't ever want him to bring that up to me or to blame me or criticize me. So I'll just give him the world. Tablets, iPads, cell phones, stay up as long as you want, do what you want, wear what you want, to give you the latest phone posits and Jordans. We'll feed you. We'll feed you all of that. All right? This is passive parenting, man. Passive parenting because you are afraid that one day your child your son is going to have that conversation with you And as uncomfortable as that conversation is going to be as I say all the time you need to stand in your discomfort Stand in your discomfort No, it didn't work out between me and your father Things happened. I'm sorry I'm not to blame for that Circumstances The qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala I didn't have no control over that It wasn't going to work We grew apart but we don't want to have that conversation, so we feed the child in this passive parenting you know mentality it's not cool man that's not cool. You are fulfilling the hadith of the prophet ﷺ and tell the, and tell the, that the the slave girl right would give birth to her master so now your child your son and many women unfortunately go into this very Uh, inappropriate emotional relationship with their sons. You develop an emotional relationship with your son where your son almost becomes like your husband. Because you don't have a husband. So now you begin, now your your son becomes your surrogate husband. Right? And it's very dangerous. And now this is what creates the baby boy syndrome. So now when a woman wants to get married... Right, find, finally find someone, the son starts to you know come in between that as if he's her husband, right? This is your mother. You know? And it, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work, man. So boys need instruction. Omar said that the child is the Amir, he is the commander in chief for the first seven years of his life. We cater to him, we give him whatever he needs, right? Within reason. He said, well, I see him, and then he becomes a servant for the next seven years, meaning from seven to 14, he's now ready to receive instruction. And yes, some of our boys, they pout, they get mad, they get angry, they get upset. That's okay. You'll thank me later. I'm preparing you for greatness. Go wash the dishes. (laughs) Go clean your clothes. Right? Put your clothes in the washing machine. Go clean your room. Go take this downstairs, take this outside, go start the car go do this. And we get tired of that. I remember being a boy and I, I was tired. Why can't you do it? But I didn't understand at that point that those commandments were for deeper reason. It wasn't just because our parents are lazy. Sometimes we think our parents are lazy. Why can't you do it? Because I told you to do it. And we walk away, pouting, upset, angry, mad, right? I can't wait till I turn 18 so I can get out of here, right? But guess what? When you turn 18 and you get out of there, you're going to have some discipline. <laughs> you're going to have some discipline before you get out of there. He said, wazir uh, And from 14 to 21, for the next seven years, he is your brother, your wazir, your partner. He is your companion. When the child turns 14, he doesn't need an overbearing father. Critical of every single decision. Why did you do that? You shouldn't have did that. You should do this. No, 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 no. He's past that stage. Now, you as the parent, as the father are there now to you know, help be a cushion for the mistakes that he's going to make from 14 to 21. For the next seven years, Akhun Wazir, he is your Um, He is your companion and he is your brother. And boys at that age, if you think about it, when you're 14, 15 years old, you don't want some overbearing parent, whether it's a mother or father, down your throat about every single decision that you make. You want to be able to have the space to make your decisions, make your mistakes so that you can learn from them. You as the father, as the parent are there to just cushion the fall, cushion the blow to be there you know for you know those conversations that they want to have when they want to have it the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he sent anas ibn malik arsala nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam yawman anas ibn malik uh fa qala anas fa arsalani yawman li hajatin, fa qultu la wallahi la adhab wa fi nafsi an adhab lamma amrani bihi an-nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam lima amara bihi an-nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam fa حتى أمر, حتى أمر على سبيان وهم يلعبون في السوق فإذا رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قد قبض بقفايا من ورائي قال فنظرت إليه وهو يضحك فيقول يا أونيس أذهبت حيث أمرتك قال قلت نعم يا رسول الله أنا أذهب الآن ثم مسها على رأسي الثلاث An An example of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam With one of the young men in his community Anas Ibn Malik was a special kind of situation Because Anis' father Malik Ibn al was a disbeliever He was a disbeliever And his mother uh, Umm Sulayn uh, Ramaysa She converted to Islam And Anas's father did not convert So she was a single mother I wrote an entire book about this Called The Paradox of Change Alright Years ago I wrote a book about this called The Paradox of Change Her whole life of converting to Islam and being a single mother And all of the trials and tribulations that she went through right? But Ennis' father never converted to Islam And Ennis' father eventually was killed And so that left Umm Sulaim as a single mother When the Prophet ﷺ, and they were from Medina When the Prophet ﷺ migrated to Medina Umm uh, um Sulaim was one of the women who met him as he entered into Medina. And she said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, I don't have a house for you to stay at. Because all of the Sahaba were inviting him to come stay with them. She said, I don't have a house for you to stay at. She said, but here's my son Ennis. Chudhu, take him and let him stay with you as long as you need him. She wanted her son to have what? To have that male presence. His father was deceased. He had no other male role model or you know someone that he could be up under. And so, what a what a better person to have your son underneath than the Prophet Wasallam. And as he said later on, that I lived with the Prophet for ten years. I lived with him, and he never once said to me, "Oof." He never once said to me what would be equivalent to, "Oh boy," right? He never once judged me or criticized me for a decision I made. Here again. When the boy turns 14, 14 to 20, 21, he does not need an overbearing, overwhelming parent, right? To constantly criticize and judge every single thing that they do. That's not what they need. That actually drives a wedge between the child and the parent. He said that I lived with the Prophet Alaihi Wasallam for 10 years and he never once said to me, oof. He never once criticized me for a decision I made. He never once said to me for something that I did. Why did you do that? And he never said to me for something that I didn't do, why didn't you do that? Never once in 10 years. Picture one of us as parents, you know, giving extending that luxury to our children. No, for every single decision that they make, we're like, why did you do that? That was stupid. You you need to go back and rethink that. You know, we're criticizing, very critical of them, man, subhanAllah. and this also applies to women who are single mothers as well. And very hard on their children. Very hard on the male children because you think that being hard on them is going to make them better boys. Going back to the statement of Frederick Douglass, it is easier to raise strong children than to fix broken men. Very easy. To raise strong children than to uh, fix broken men. So, and as he said, the Prophet uh, sent me to run an errand for him one day. He sent me to run an errand for him one day. He said, He said, He said, So when the Prophet told me, I need you to run an errand for me, he said, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go. This is normal. This is Anna's a companion. He said, the Prophet told me to go run an errand for him, and I didn't want to go. But deep down inside, I was going to go. I was going to go. But I, I didn't want to go. He said, so I left out to go run the errand for him. And I passed by some young boys playing in the market. They're playing in the marketplace. He said, so I stopped to play with them. He said, and then lo and behold, I felt someone grab me from my collar. Grab me from behind. And when I turned around and I looked up, it was the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And he was smiling at me, and he said to me, Ya yeah, Unais, he called him, you know, gave him a nickname, mean, O Little Ennis, oh Little Ennis. <laughs> oh, little Ennis. This is how you make something small in Arabic. He said, Ya yeah, Unais, did you go and do what I told you to do? And Enis said, no. He said, but I'm going to go right now, O Messenger of Allah. He said, and the Prophet, you know, he smiled, and, you know, he patted me on my head, you know, three times. All right? This was the Prophet Sallallahu teaching Ennis, you know, discipline, go, don't get distracted, because sometimes our boys get distracted. But he followed up, he gave him the commandment, and Ennis got lost in the marketplace, and the Prophet Sallallahu he f- followed up, and he found him playing in the marketplace, and he said, did you go do what I told you to do? And this is something that as parents, we do this all the time, we tell our children to do something, then we go and follow up, we say, did you do what I told you to do? No. All right, go do it again. Right? Or go do it. So we have to follow up with the boys. Um, there are two types of pain that boys experience in this world. You listening? Two types of pain that boys experience in this world. And that is the pain of discipline. That comes with pain. Being disciplined. And the pain of regret for not exercising discipline. <laughs> Because when you don't have discipline, you're going to engage in behaviors that's going to cause you a lot of pain, and you're going to wish that you had been more disciplined. Two types of pain that boys experience in life, and that is the pain of being disciplined, not being able to go as you want, do as you want, say as you want, spend as you want. You, you, you know, you have a, a different type of life. And many of our Muslim children, they feel the pain of that. We create this bubble, we have them live in this bubble, and they look at the rest of the world and they want to be like everybody else, but we're preparing you for greatness. You're not like everybody else. And they need to understand that. And you'll thank me later. I tell my children in school, they hate me. Not that they hate me, but I'm very regimented. And I give them rules and, you know, without law there's no order. That's my philosophy. Without law there's no order. right? And I am the enforcer. Right, so when they see me walking through the hall, they're scrambling. Oh, here comes Brother Shadid! Right, but at the same token, when they get they get upset, I always tell them, "You'll thank me later." Right now, I don't I don't expect you to understand my perspective. I am an adult; you are a child. You don't understand. You have yet to go through what I have already gone through. So I don't expect you to understand. So your sentiment of, I hate you, I don't like you, you're the worst teacher in the school, (laughs) that's okay. I have thick skin, I can handle that. But you will thank me later. Trust me. Trust me. So there's two types of pain that boys will experience in this world. And that is the pain of discipline and the pain of regret for not exercising discipline. Yeah, absolutely. And as boys, we know there's some things that we've done in our lives that we regret. And that regret is just as painful as the discipline that you should have exercised from the beginning. Just as painful. Discipline is the main quality of a leader, Uh, and we learn this through fasting. We learn this through salat. We learn this through many other acts acts of worship in Islam. All right. Discipline teaches boys to be responsible men. Right. Being disciplined it teaches you to be responsible with money, with yourself. With your spirituality, everything teaches you to be disciplined. The Prophet ﷺ said, That men are the protectors and maintainers of women. You cannot be a man and you cannot protect and maintain women if you do not have discipline. Not gonna happen. You cannot be a man and protect and maintain women without discipline. If you're reckless, No woman is actually going to respect you enough to put her life in your hands, (laughs) right? What woman is going to put her life? And unfortunately, we have many women in the Islamic community that have married men that are completely reckless. They were reckless from the very beginning, sisters, and you knew that. You knew that. You knew they were reckless, and you married them anyway. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Men are the protectors and maintainers of women because of the virtue that Allah has given one, the responsibility that Allah has given one over the other. And because men spend from their wealth to protect and maintain their women. Men spend from their wealth. This is why um, men receive more in inheritance than women because men spend from their wealth. What a woman gets from her father's inheritance is hers. She pockets it. She doesn't have to spend it. What a man receives, he has to spend it. Right? I go cash my check. The lady says when she's giving me my money, she said, do you want me to put it in the envelope? I said, no, because it's already spent. <laughs> you know, No need to put it in the envelope. The money is already spent. 200 is going here 300 is going here 500 is going here I'm left with a couple of pennies Peanuts Go get me a pair of socks And call it a day A cup of coffee Call it a day I'm broke all over again Right? That's, 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 the, that's our responsibility And because the men They spend from their wealth Part of the reason why Many of our women Are neglected today It's very serious In the Islamic community Because we're looking at from masjid to masjid, community after community, and we're trying to figure out why do we have so many women in the Islamic community that are neglected. Neglected sexually. So many women complaining about, you know, being sexually unfulfilled. Uh, Emotionally neglected married but not married because he's emotionally unavailable physically he's there he provides he's a great provider but he doesn't compliment you he's not there with you in your moments of vulnerability he's never there to you know you know be there in the moment with you emotionally when you need him emotionally unavailable sexually neglected emotionally neglected right sometimes financially neglected Right, He's not paying the bills on time, he's not paying the bills at all He's not getting a job, he's not doing this, he's not doing that So many neglects, has children and he doesn't take out the children Doesn't do anything with the children, so much neglect And part of the reason why many of our women in the communities are neglected Is due to the irresponsibility of the men We are not raising our boys to be responsible And that's a problem, that's a problem Right? the divorces the domestic violence right the neglected children the extended adolescence the lack of the lack of testicular fortitude you have some men who marry women and they let their mothers run their marriage what woman is going to respect you when you let your mother dictate the whole entire marriage no woman is going to respect you you have no testicular fortitude all right and all of that is due to being uh, irresponsible Not only does this teach the boys uh, discipline, teach them to be responsible, but it also teaches them to be autonomous. Being disciplined, it teaches them to be autonomous. That in the absence of the father, they still know how to function. That their ability to function as men is not predicated on the presence of the father. Teaching them discipline, teaching them responsibility, teaches them also to be autonomous. Meaning that in my absence, you can still function. You're good. Yeah, it's going to hurt. You're going to cry. You're going to feel the pain of my absence, but you will know how to function. Number three, uh, boys need praise. Boys need praise, believe it or not. More so from the father than from the mother. Why? Because when a woman praises her boys, her sons, it feeds that, that neediness, that 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 side of that that maternal relationship between a boy and his mother when a father praises his son it builds character you understand it's a different type of praise you guys follow me when a woman praises you when your mother says oh you did a good job mashallah you know and she praises you and pats you on the back and you know takes you out for you know lunch and you know goes and buys you a pair of sneakers right that's his mom That's a different type of praise. It does something different to you. It makes you mushy and it makes you want to love her more. When a father praises you, you feel like a man. You understand? You feel like I've accomplished something. Why? Because you feel like I finally measured up in my father's eyes. My father finally sees me as a man. My father finally respects me as a man. And that's all a boy wants from his father is to see me as an equal to you. Not that you see him as an equal, but you actually respect the fact that he's now becoming a man. Why do a lot, and this is especially with African-American men, African-American boys. Their biggest issue is respect. Believe it or not. African-American boys, their biggest issue is respect. They will pull a gun out on you, they will fire at you in broad daylight. Because you didn't respect them. That's all it is. Respect. And a lot of times this is due to the father not being in the home. Or a man being in the home. But not seeing them as a man. So they feel like they have to go out into the world. And force the world to see them. For who they are. Right? In the the interview that Jay-Z did. He did an interview a, a, a few months ago. Right? And in the interview, he said that when we were young, we used to get into fights just for looking at the person the wrong way. Somebody looking at you like, yo, what you looking at? Why are you looking at me like that? Right? I don't know if they still do that. Probably not. Millennial kids, they. <laughs> when we were growing up, they got into fights for something as simple as looking at a person. And one of the things he said, he said, you know, the reason why we got offended when somebody looked at us the wrong way. Is because we were insecure and we actually felt like the person could see straight through us. It's like, oh, you see me? Who are you to see me? Like, it was so profound, man. Who are you to see me? Who are you to look at me and actually see how broken I am on the inside? Do you understand? It's like, what are you looking at? It's that defense mechanism. It goes up immediately, especially with African American boys, right? They, the 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 defense goes up immediately. Why are you looking at me? What you looking at? Because it's like, who are you to see straight through me? Who are you to see how broken I am? Who are you to see, you know, how much of a, you know, how much of a weakling I am? How weak I am? Who are you to see that? Let me defend that. Who are you looking at? What you looking at? Punch you in your face. You understand what I'm saying? We're going to defend that because we don't want anybody to see that. And that's very dangerous, man. And, all boys want is that praise, that validation, that 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 awareness that I finally earned your respect as my father. Alright? Boys need praise. It reinforces their self image, which helps them to build their confidence. Right? Look at what Khadija's praise did to the Prophet. And this in this this is even as it relates to women. We're married to women, and women, I want you to ask yourselves, how often do you praise your husband? I'm not talking about stroke his ego, but sometimes we need that as well. But at the same token, I'm talking about praise him. You know, thank you. You know, I really appreciate the way that, you know, you take care of the family. I really appreciate the way. I mean, what what does that do to us as men when your wife says that to you? Does that not boost your ego? Does that not make you feel like, I am the man. <laughs> I am the man. Absolutely. And if only women understood how powerful that was. If they only knew how powerful it was just to stroke his ego one time, just to say something nice to him. Look at what Khadijah did to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He ran home. He said cover me, cover me. Scared, terrified. And he said, you know, I think that God is humiliating me. I think this is Allah's way of punishing me. And Khadijah said, "Tella wallahi." No. No, by Allah, no, this can't be. You feed the poor, you take on responsibilities that you're not, not are not yours, you take care of your guests, you do this, you do this, you do this, and begin to mention all of the good things about him. That in that vulnerable moment, he didn't even realize, you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes, you know, as it's, it's really hard to see yourself at times. This is why praise is so powerful, because sometimes we get lost in the oblivion of our frustration. And it's really hard to see how good of a person you really are. And you need, this is what your spouse is there for. So, those moments that we feel vulnerable, those moments that we feel like, I don't amount to anything, you need the other person to step in and say, No, you know what? You're the best husband. I'm glad I married someone like you. I love the way that you do this. I appreciate you when you do this. That's all we need. That will breathe life back into a man. Wallahi. It will breathe life back into a man. Boys need praise. Praise reinforces their self-image, which helps them to build their confidence. Alright? One of the things that the Prophet ﷺ used to do with the Sahaba, and we'll make this the last one, inshallah. One of the things that the Prophet ﷺ used to do with the Sahaba is used to give them what is called a kunya. A kunya, surname, meaning to call you um or abu. And for the boys to call them Abu, such and such. To give you a kunya. That the Sahaba, they used to give their sons kunyas Abu, such and such. Because the reason why is because this would give them... Himmat al Aliyah would give them high aspirations. It would give them something to aspire to uh, in the future. And it would also make them feel the weight of the responsibility. Follow me. Feel the weight of the responsibility that in the future you are going to be a father. So by calling you Abu such and such now while you're a kid. Is giving you the mentality. Preparing you for responsibility later on. Giving you the that feeling of. Being important, what are you going to name your first son? I'm going to name my son Muhammad. Okay, you're Abu Muhammad, and he's seven years old, eight years old. You're calling your son Abu Muhammad, Abu Abdullah, Abu Abdurrahman. Right, this is what you're calling your son at eight, nine, ten, eleven years old, and you're giving him. Number one, something to aspire to and you're also allowing him to feel the weight of the responsibility that awaits him that eventually he's going to be a father. It was mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari that the Prophet sallallahu said to the brother of Anas ibn Malik, Ya Aba Umair, ma fa'ala nughaym. The, the brother, the younger brother of Anas ibn Malik, his bird died one day. The Prophet sallallahu used to pass by him and he always used to be playing with this bird. And so one day he saw the young boy crying, and he walked over to him and he said, "Ya yeah, abu Umer, ma fa'ala nukheer." He said, "Oh, Abu Umer, that wasn't his name, but he gave him a nickname, gave him a surname right there on the spot." He said, "Oh, Abu Umer, what happened to your bird?" And he made it in like a rhyme, a little a, a rhyme form, "Ya yeah, abu Umer, ma fa'ala right, just to kind of soften the blow. He realized the boy was crying because his bird died, and the Prophet Wasallam called him Abu Umer. Gave him a sense of belonging, a sense of worth, right? Abdurrahman an Lahu. And the Prophet ﷺ used to call Abdullah ibn Mas'ud Abu Abdurrahman before he even had any children. You are Abu Abdurrahman. He gave him that nickname. He gave his son a nickname, gave him a surname, even though he didn't have any children. And this shows you the permissibility of someone having a surname even though they don't have any children. Aisha, one day she was feeling, you know, really, you know, down on herself, very vulnerable She said, Oh Messenger of Allah, all of your wives have children except me All of your wives have been married, you know, Aisha was the only virgin that he married So all of his other wives have been married previously And most of them had children from previous marriages So Aisha feeling, you know, vulnerable at that moment She said, Oh Messenger of Allah, all of your wives have children except me Right, Meaning, you had Juwania had children, you had Hafsa had children, you had Um Habiba had children, Um Salama had children. All of these women had surnames Um. Um Habiba, Um Salama, Um such and such, Um such and such. And Aisha's like, Well, I don't have any children with you. I'm your youngest wife, I'm the only virgin you marry. I don't have any children. And the Prophet said, You are Um Abdullah. Where did Abdullah come from? Her nephew. Her sister's son, Asma, Asma and Zubair, they had a son, the first son, the oldest son, Abdullah ibn Zubair. One of the, Abadila Arba, one of the four companions named Abdullah who memorized the most hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. And he was actually the first child born to the Muhajirin when they migrated to Medina. The first child born in Medina from the people of Mecca, Abdullah ibn Zubair. So, the Prophet ﷺ said, Aisha, your kunya is Umm Abdullah, after your nephew. Gave her a kunya, even though she didn't have any children, trying to help her through that moment of vulnerability. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, he said, one day I was climbing the tree, the Siwak tree, to go get a miswak. Break off one of the branches to get a miswak. He said, and the wind blew my thob up, and so the sahaba saw how skinny my legs were, and they began to laugh at my legs. And the Prophet ﷺ, he said, He said, are you laughing at how skinny his legs are? He said, He said, are you laughing at how skinny his legs are? He said, I swear to God, His two little legs will weigh more in the scales with Allah on the Day of Judgment than the mountain of Uhud." Don't judge a man by how skinny he is, by the, how frail he is in terms of his physical weight, but judge him by the weight of his knowledge and his contributions to Islam. Don't judge him by how skinny he is. In Islam, we don't judge a person by how skinny they are, how big they are. We judge a person by their deeds. And Abdullah ibn Mas'ud who will go down in history, has gone down in history as one of the greatest companions, one of the most knowledgeable companions of the Prophet. ﷺ. And can you imagine how Abdullah ibn Mas'ud felt when he heard the Prophet ﷺ say this? Like that, he just praised me. He said, My two skinny legs will weigh more than the mountain of Uhud on the day of judgment in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Can you imagine what that did to his ego? Can you imagine what that did to him? The last example is the Prophet ﷺ was very uh, generous with his praise of his companions. And as fathers, we should be very generous with the praise of our boys. You know, identifying special qualities of your sons. Right. You have one son who's a brainiac. He's very intelligent, very smart. Another one who's a pretty boy. Another one who likes to dress, has swag. Another one who, you know, is good with, you know, Islam and memorizing Quran. You have, I mean, this is the benefit of having multiple sons in the home. Each one of them has their own individual personality and their own quality. And to highlight that quality would give that child a sense of identity. One of the hardest things it is for a boy being raised in a house with multiple siblings is to create your own identity. Because sometimes you're living vicariously through the oldest child, through the youngest child. You understand what I'm saying? Especially if you're the middle kid. If you're the middle kid, the middle kid is usually messed up. (laughs) Messed up in terms of identity and where they actually belong. Right? They look at the luxuries and the privileges that are given to the oldest child, which they know that they will never have, and they're looking at the youngest child that gets away with murder, which they never get. They get blamed for everything. So if you're the middle child, you go through what is called middle child syndrome. Right. So growing up in a home where there's multiple siblings is very difficult sometimes to find your own niche, to find your own identity. You're living vicariously through this child or that child until eventually you get to a point where you realize I am who I am. I'm never going to be my oldest brother. I'm never going to be my youngest brother or I'm never going to be the youngest brother. I'm always going to be the oldest child. I'm always going to be responsible. I'm always going to be the one that's in charge. I'm always going to be the one even though I don't want to be right. I'm always going to be that. And you learn to embrace that. But when you have a parent that is able to give you your identity and say, you know what, this is who you are and I'm proud of who you are. It gets on my nerves sometimes. I have a child, you know, very sarcastic. He's sarcastic to his teacher. His teacher calls me in for a parent-teacher conversation or meeting and says, you know, the child is, your child is sarcastic, his tongue. And I'm like, well, join the club. (laughs) I catch the same thing at home. That's just who he is. I can't change that about him. That's just who he is. We can help him to, you know, learn how to, you know, curtail it, learn how to control it. But to change it, you're asking for a miracle. That's who he is. And I'm not going to do that. And we even, we found a shirt one day in the store and say, um, my language or my, I speak sarcasm. I speak fluent sarcasm. That was this that's we found the t-shirt in the store. And we bought the t-shirt for him. <laughs> right, we're giving him his identity. We're giving him his identity. We're acknowledging that this is who you are and embrace it. Even though it gets on my nerve, even though you get in trouble for it sometimes, embrace it. That's who you are. You understand? Not trying to make all of our children one. If two people are the same, one of them is irrelevant. We don't want all of our children to be the same. We want them to have diversity. We want them to embrace their own individuality. But one of the things the Prophet sallallahu Alaihi did with his companions is he acknowledged the good qualities of every single one of them as they were. This gave them identity. So in one hadith, the Prophet ﷺ he said, "Arhamu ummati bi ummati Abu Bakr." The most merciful of my ummah to my ummah is Abu Bakr. Merciful, he said. "Wa fi dinillah Umar." And the most rigid of my ummah in terms of the religion is Umar ibn Al-Khattab. He said, Uthman." He said, "And the most modest of them, the most shy and modest of them, is Uthman." He said, haram Mu'adh bin Jabal." He said, "The most knowledgeable of my ummah as it relates to the halal and the haram is Mu'adh bin Jabal." He said, "Wa'afraduhum Zaid," and the one who knows the most about money zakat is Zaid ibn Harid. He said, "Wali kulli ummatin amin Abu Ubaidah. He said, and every ummah has a trustworthy person, and the trustworthy person of my ummah is Abu Ubaidah. What do you notice about this hadith? That the Prophet ﷺ, number one, was very generous with his praise. Some of us, we feel like if I praise you, that's going to make your head blow up. It's going to make you arrogant. No. The right amount of praise. Praise, just like admonishment, should be given like water to a plant. You don't pour too much on it so you destroy the roots. You pour just enough so it sprouts, it grows. Praise, as well as criticism, should be given like water is given to a plant. You pour just enough so that the sprout, the sprouts, it grows. You don't pour too much so that you destroy the roots. You pour too much water on a plant, you'll destroy the roots. Praise and criticism should be given the same exact way. Alright? But the Prophet was him, he was very generous with his praise, and we should be like that with our boys. Praise them for the good qualities that they have. Even if those good qualities sometimes get them in trouble, later on, those good qualities, if they learn how to temper Those qualities, they learn how to hone in on those qualities, they will become good qualities later on. And sometimes we, you know, we, you know, blame them and criticize them for a particular quality. Why are you always talking back? Right? Stop talking back to me. Yeah, we want to teach them not to talk back, but we also want to teach them to defend themselves when they're right. If you shut the child down every time they try to defend themselves, what are you creating? You're going to create a passive child that will accept anything that anyone says about them. When a child tries to defend themselves, no, it wasn't me. No, I didn't say that. That's not how it went. And you say, well, tell me how it went. And you give a child a chance to explain themselves, right? Don't steal that from the child. Don't say, shut up. This is what your teacher said. This is how it went. I know what I saw. Don't tell me anything. This is what my parents, this is what our parents did to us. I wasn't allowed to have an opinion, which is probably why I'm so freaking opinionated now but I wasn't allowed to have an opinion shut up whatever I said is law you understand what I'm saying that this is the way that this is the way that I was raised and so therefore I had to learn that it is okay for me to have an opinion I had to learn that I didn't learn that at home at home I was taught do as I say do you understand it was a monarchy. <laughs> my parents were monarchs, <laughs> Olarks. <laughs> oligarchy. This is this is do as I say, do. It is what it is, and don't say anything. Right? It's just like you want to say, but you better not open your mouth. It's just like I can't even explain. Don't say nothing. You better not open your mouth. Go in your room. It's just like that. I don't even get to say what what my side of it. Right? You ever you ever feel like that? No, you got to you got to you want the children to understand that they do have an opinion. And even though their opinion at that moment may not matter at that point because you're the law, you're the parent, but at the same token, we want to be authoritative parents, not authoritarian parents. There are three types of parenting. There's authoritarian, which is the monarch, right? The despot, right? The oligarch this is, this is the, 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 the authoritarian. Do as I say do. You understand? Dictator. Dictator. You don't even have a voice in that type of home. That's horrible. These type of children become the sneakiest children. And become the most disobedient children because they only obey you under your law. Once they are removed from your, you know, your country, removed from, you know I mean, like the laws that you governed with, they run amok. And this is very dangerous. Then you have the authoritative parent. This is the type of parent who sets rules, gives the child an opportunity to break those rules and, you know, gives them discipline, gives them, you know, certain responsibilities and discipline. All right, but at the same token, the child is given an opportunity to explain themselves. The child, you know, accepts responsibility for their actions and you move forward. And then you have the last type of parent which is the passive parent. This is the type of parent that lets the child do whatever they want to do. All right? No laws, lax key kids, you can basically do whatever you want to do. This type of parenting is uh, very dangerous Because the child has no rules And uh Eventually Uh This child grows up Not respecting any laws Any rules Very dangerous So Inshallah Ta'ala, This is uh Just number three Of our lecture And um We'll stop here Uh The next lecture Will continue Uh With number four As you can see Is um It's a huge task Huge responsibility Um I got ten pages in front of me. We only got through about three or four. (laughs) We only got through four pages. Five pages actually. Halfway through. And that took us about two hours. Uh, So we'll stop here inshallah ta'ala. We don't have any time for questions and answers. Unless you guys have any questions. Um, as for you guys on Periscope and Facebook Live, inshallah, we'll save the questions for another time. any last, getting late, so we're gonna pray Isha and leave. Shukran, Jazakum Allah Khairan for tuning in. May Allah subhanahu wa taala reward you, and we'll continue at another time. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.